Welcome to Heightened Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and civil rights. I'm Joe Dunman. There are approximately 1.3 million licensed attorneys in the United States. Statistically speaking, almost none of them will ever argue a case before the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court grants cert to approximately 70 cases per year. That number is down significantly from the middle of the 20th century, when the court would often hear more than 100 cases during each term. But even then, only a very small number of lawyers ever stood before the Supreme Court bench and argued their case. Of those very few, an even more elite group exists. Those are the lawyers who argued cases before the Supreme Court, then became Supreme Court justices themselves. The most famous of these, and the most accomplished, was Thurgood Marshall. As an attorney for the NAACP, Marshall argued and won such landmark civil rights cases as Sweat v. Painter and Brown v. Board of Education in the 1950s. In 1965, Lyndon Johnson appointed him as Solicitor General of the United States. The Solicitor General is the highest-ranking courtroom attorney in the country, and regularly argues cases in the Supreme Court on behalf of the U.S. government. Marshall had a very animated, passionate style at oral argument. This was evident in the case of United States v. Price, dealing with a brutal lynching in Mississippi in 1964. Solicitor General Marshall argued that the Constitution gave the federal government the power to punish those who deprive the rights of others while acting under the color of law. As a matter of fact, Section 241 is a part of the first civil rights law passed after the adoption of the amendments. The natural assumption is that the new statute was peculiarly concerned with protecting these new constitutional rights. Is there anything in the conditions of the time that suggests that Congress was focusing on rights derived from the relationship of the citizen to the national government, rather than the relationship between the citizen and his state government? The time, I repeat, was 1870. This was a reconstruction measure. The problem then was of assuring equal rights and protection to the new freedmen who were the victims of racial antagonism. Against that background, it seems obvious that when Congress spoke of constitutional rights, it meant to include those derived from the due process and equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment and the right to freedom from racial discrimination and exercise of the right to vote guaranteed in the 15th Amendment. Less than two years after the argument in Price, Solicitor General Thurgood Marshall became Justice Thurgood Marshall. President Johnson appointed him as the first African-American Supreme Court Justice in October 1967. By December of that year, Justice Marshall seemed quite comfortable in his new role. Here he questions one of the attorneys in the landmark case of Terry v. Ohio, dealing with police stops and searches for weapons. Well, Mr. Payne, in this case, this arresting officer testified, did he not, that he didn't, he had never seen anybody case a joint. That is correct. He did so he testify. He also testified that he'd been on that same area for some 30 years doing the following things, checking for pickpockets and shoplifters. That is correct. So where did he get his expertise about somebody's about to commit a robbery? I think that he would get his expertise by virtue of the fact that he had been a member of the police department for 40 years. And by being a member of the police department for 40 years, 
I'm quite sure that even if by osmosis some knowledge would have to come to him of the various degrees now, of crimes... Now we get intuition by osmosis. Not at all, sir. Not at not. all. Not at all. I did not mean... I, 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 no. I, I didn't I'm sorry. I'm mean uh, to imply that, nor did I mean uh, any disrespect by so using that particular term. I think that, for example, if I, as a lawyer, am around a particular office for a number of years, that I certainly must gain knowledge about various concepts of law that may come about from time to time. There are and exceptions to that. <laughs> Justice Marshall would serve on the court until 1991. Of the nine current members of the court, four of them had previously argued cases there. Elena Kagan was U.S. Solicitor General from March 2009 until May 2010. In the Notorious Citizens United case, she argued on behalf of the government that the existing restrictions on corporate advertising and advocacy were constitutional. At the very beginning of her argument, she confidently tussled with late Justice Antonin Scalia, who would soon become her colleague. General Kagan. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I have three very quick points to make about the government's position. The first is that this issue has a long history. For over a hundred years, Congress has made a judgment that corporations must be subject to special rules when they participate in elections, and this Court has never questioned that judgment. Number two. Wait, 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 wait. We never questioned it, but we never approved it either. And, and, and we gave some really weird interpretations to the Taft-Hartley Act in order to avoid confronting the question. I'll repeat what I said, Justice Scalia. For a hundred years, this Court, faced with many opportunities to do so, uh, left standing the legislation that is at issue in this case, first the contribution limits, then the expenditure limits that came in by way of Taft-Hartley, and then, of course, in, uh, in Austin, specifically approved those limits. I don't understand what you're saying. I mean, we're, we're, we're not a self, uh, self-starting uh, institution here. We, we, we only uh, disapprove of something when somebody asks us to. And if there was no occasion for us to approve or disapprove, it proves nothing whatever that we didn't disapprove it. Well, you're not a self-starting institution, but many litigants brought many cases to you from 1907 onwards. And in each case, this Court turns down, declined the opportunity to invalidate or otherwise interfere with this legislation. From May 2010 until August of that year, Kagan was the dean of Harvard Law School. Then Dean Kagan became Justice Kagan when Barack Obama appointed her to the court. Just a few months later, she was dealing with another election law case, this time out of Arizona. The Political Action Committee of the Arizona Free Enterprise Club opposed state subsidies provided to candidates who opted out of private election funding. Justice Kagan was quite skeptical of their complaints. What this case is about is whether the government can turn my act of speaking into the vehicle by which my political opponents benefit with direct government subsidies. Could I try to understand that argument a little bit better, Mr. Moorer? Suppose, and I know that you think that this is not the case, but just bear with the hypothetical. Suppose that there were, in fact, no deterrent effect on your speech or on the speech of any candidate. In other words, that people thought, well, you know, I'd rather be, have uh, me be the only person who talks, but, uh, but I'd rather talk than be silent, even if it means my opponent can talk, too. So that there's no deterrent effect from this law whatsoever. Would there still be a constitutional objection? 
Your Honor, in Davis, this Court recognized that a trigger like this, a, a law that turns the choice of my choice of, to speak effectively into fundraising advantages for my opponents constitutes a substantial burden. So even if candidates continue to speak, the law constitutes a substantial burden on their speech. Well, it constitutes a substantial burden. So even if every single person makes a choice, yes, I want to continue to speak, it does not chill any speak, I supp- any speech. I suppose I'm not sure what it means to constitute a substantial burden if, in fact, the law does not chill speech. The Supreme Court would ultimately strike down the Arizona public election funding system. Justice Kagan wrote a harsh dissent. Another current member of the court who once served in the Solicitor General's office is Chief Justice John Roberts. Roberts began his private practice in 1986, but by 1989 he was appointed Principal Deputy Solicitor General by George H.W. Bush. Roberts returned to private practice in 1983. He argued at least 14 more cases before the court, including one dealing with complicated rules for benefits provided to coal miners, Barnhart v. Peabody Coal. Roberts' steady and articulate style was on full display. But the pay-for-your-own principle itself is, uh, embodies rough justice. A company that employs a miner for two years pays for all his benefits. Another company may have employed him for 25 years. That's the compromise that was agreed to, and that's fine. But it doesn't mean that this pay-for-your-own principle is some unqualified desideratum that you can assume Congress intended to pursue at all costs in perpetuity. We know that's not the case. They had a deadline, and they Mr. Roberts, it. didn't you omit one of the other statutory purposes, which was as insofar as possible to assign responsibility for paying the benefits to the company that had the best, the closest connection with that particular miner? Yes, and we know that was, for example, not a purpose they wanted to pursue or uberales. Uh, if a company goes bankrupt, those But miners, it was one of the major purposes, was it not? It was one of the purposes, yes, and it was one that Congress said spend a year trying to make the assignments. But then we've got to launch this fund. uh, And what is really going on here is that the commissioner wants to do a different sort of job than Congress delegated to her. He would only argue one more case before the court before being appointed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals by George W. Bush in 2003. Two years later, he was appointed by Bush to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, succeeding the late William Rehnquist. As Chief Justice, Robert maintains a polite, affable pose, while still being aggressive in his questioning. Here he asks questions about federalism in the landmark marriage case of United States versus Windsor. Uh, uh, Obviously, with respect to marriage, the federal government has always used the state definitions. And I think what you're, Mr. Chief Justice, what you're proposing is to extend, the federal government extend additional benefits uh, to gay couples in states that do not allow marriage to equalize the system. I just am asking whether you think Congress has the power to interfere with the to not adopt the state definition if they're extending benefits. Do they have that authority? I think the question under the Equal Protection Clause is what what the distinction is. No, no, I know that. You're you're following the lead of the Solicitor General in returning to the Equal Protection Clause every time I ask a federalism question. Is there any problem under federalism principles? With the federal government? With Congress passing a law saying we are going to adopt a different definition of marriage than those states that don't recognize same-sex marriage. We don't care whether you do as a matter of state law. When it comes to federal benefits, uh, same-sex marriage will be recognized. Third on our list of current justices who've argued cases before the court is Samuel Alito. Like Justice Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts, Alito served in the Solicitor General's office. 
From 1981 to 1985, he served as Assistant Solicitor General under Rex Lee during the Reagan administration. In that role, Alito argued 12 cases before the court, including this one from 1984, Atkins v. Parker, dealing with food stamp benefits. Now, since the plaintiffs in this case, who were food stamp recipients, had no vested interest in continuing to receive benefits at the pre-1981 level, one may well ask on what theory they claim that implementation of the 1981 reduction deprived them of property and triggered the Due Process Clause. And their theory, as I understand it, is as follows. First, they correctly note that they have a property interest in getting the right amount of benefits. Then they say this interest is threatened when the law is changed because the risk of administrative accident in calculating benefits increases at this time of confusion. And therefore, they say, we're entitled to advance notice explaining to us how our new benefit level was calculated so that we can double-check the state's computation. Now, the first thing that's wrong with this theory, in our view, is the premise that a great risk of administrative error occurs when a simple mathematical change like that enacted in 1981 is uh, implemented. This premise is devoid of empirical support, and it's intuitively incorrect. This is a simple mathematical operation. After spending nearly 16 years as a judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, Alito was appointed to the Supreme Court by George W. Bush in 2006. He replaced Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve on the court. Justice Alito occupies a consistent spot in the conservative wing of the court. Here, he asks another Solicitor General, Donald Verrilli, about gay marriage in the 2013 case of Hollingsworth v. Perry, dealing with California's Proposition 8 ballot initiative. Do you want us to assess the, uh, the, the effects of uh, same-sex marriage, the potential effects on, of same-sex marriage, the potential of the effects of, of Proposition 8? But what, what is your response to the argument which has already been mentioned about the, the need to be cautious in light of the newness of the, the concept of, of same-sex marriage. The one thing that the parties in this case seem to agree on is that marriage is very important. It's thought to be a fundamental building block of society and its preservation essential for the preservation of society. And same, uh, traditional marriage has been around for thousands of years. Same-sex marriage is very new. I think it was first adopted in the Netherlands in 2000. So there isn't a lot of data about its effect. And it may turn out to be a, a good thing. It may turn out not to be a good thing, as uh, the supporters of Proposition 8 uh, apparently believe. But you want us to step in and render a decision based on an assessment of the effects of this institution, which is newer than cell phones or the Internet? I mean, we're, we are not we do not have the ability to see the future. Last, but certainly not least, is the final member of this exclusive club, none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Unlike her counterparts, Justice Ginsburg never served as a government attorney. Instead, she worked first as a law professor, and then as general counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union. As head of the Women's Rights Project for the ACLU, Ginsburg frequently found herself in the Supreme Court, working on or actually arguing such landmark cases as Reed v. Reed, Frontiero v. Richardson, and Craig v. Boren. Between 1973 and 1976, Ginsburg argued six gender discrimination cases before the court. She won five. Her only loss was the 1974 case of Kahn v. Shevin, dealing with a Florida law that gave property tax exemptions to widows, but not widowers. 
She did not lose for lack of eloquence or confidence at the lectern, which she always had to lower all the way when arguing before the court. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll hear arguments next in 73-78, Kahn against Shevin. Ginsburg, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice. If you'd like to lower the lectern, you're quite at liberty to do so. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. But small as she is, Ginsburg's strong voice and unwavering confidence commanded respect from the justices, still all men during that era. My point is that for women, the sec what will aid women most is not looking to see whether a classification is benign mm. or invidious, but whether it is a sex right. criterion as a shorthand for what should be a functional right. criterion. Whether it helps you, even if it helps. Uh, My question is if it ever does yeah. help. Yes. But even if it does, you would assume. On that assumption, well, I have not yet found any such classification in the law that genu genuinely helps. Uh, from a very short-sighted viewpoint, perhaps, such as this one, yes. But, uh, but long run, no. I think that what women need is, first of all, a removal of exclusions and restrictive quotas. They are the only population group that today still faces outright exclusions and restrictive quotas, and then what is necessary is a welcome sign, uh, a notice that in the professions, in trades and occupations, women are now as welcome as men. But the notion that they need special favored treatment because they are women, I think, has been what has he helped to keep women in a special place and has kept them away from equal opportunity for so long. In 1980, Jimmy Carter appointed Ginsburg to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, where she served for 13 years. In 1993, Bill Clinton appointed her to the Supreme Court, filling the seat left by Justice Byron White. Ginsburg became the second woman to serve on the court. Many years have now passed since Justice Ginsburg argued before the court, and her voice is not as strong as it once was, but she nevertheless receives incredible respect from her colleagues and from attorneys who argue before her, and her command of women's rights issues remains as strong as ever. In this clip, she announces her dissenting opinion in the 2006 case of Ledbetter v. Goodyear, dealing with gender-based pay inequality. Four members of this court, Justices Stephen Souter-Breyer and I, dissent from today's decision. In our view, the court does not comprehend or is indifferent to the insidious way in which women can be victims of pay discrimination. This is not the first time this Court has ordered a cramped interpretation of Title VII incompatible with the statute's broad remedial purpose. In 1991, Congress passed a Civil Rights Act that effectively overruled several of this Court's similarly restrictive decisions, including one on which the Court relies today. Today, the ball again lies in Congress's court, as in 1991, the legislature has cause to note and to correct this court's parsimonious reading of Title VII. The newest member of the court, Justice Neil Gorsuch, never argued a case before the Supreme Court, but others who've been named as possible future nominees have, such as Judge William Pryor, 
who argued the case of Alabama v. Shelton in 2001. History shows us that many elite attorneys who've argued before the court eventually join it. For that reason, it is not a stretch to assume that a future justice of the Supreme Court will follow suit. Thanks for listening to this episode of Extra Scrutiny, a bonus series of short episodes exploring the idiosyncratic quirks of the Supreme Court's members throughout history. If you enjoy Extra Scrutiny and the regular episodes of this podcast, please support it by visiting its website, scrutinypod.com, subscribing through any popular podcast service, and by donating to its Patreon campaign at patreon.com scrutinypod. Thanks again.